gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Armature Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The Phantom Zone, home of Krypton's worst criminals. But what would happen if they escaped and found themselves on a planet whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave them fantastic superpowers? Especially when they also put Superman in the Phantom Zone in the process. It's Kryptonian criminals versus the world's greatest superheroes, while Superman tries to get back to Earth. Superman in the Bronze Age presents The The Phantom Zone Hello, and welcome to episode 85 of Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and today begins our month-long look at the Phantom Zone miniseries. But, a story this big can't be contained by just one podcast. So, Superman in the Bronze Age will be crossing over with my other show, Charlie's GeekCast, to bring you a new chapter each week in October. But before we get into all of that, there's a few items of business I need to take care of first. First off, I need to mention that this episode is sponsored by InStock Trades. Be sure to follow InStock Trades on Twitter and you will receive notices on the deals of the week. Now that the holidays are around the corner, this is a great site to do some holiday shopping and shipping is free for for orders over $50. You can check them out at InStockTrades.com. Next up, we've got some emails. Our first email this episode comes from Mike Poteet, a.k.a. BiblioMike, and he writes, Hi Charlie, just listened to episode 83 and enjoyed it a lot. First of all, I love Let My People Grow, both the story itself and your discussion of it, especially your pointing out its wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey nature. Yeah, the story had some goofy comic book science, as you pointed out, but I also think that it was a surprising amount of emotional heft and a nice Brigadoon-esque twist at the end. I've always thought Candor would make a good subject for a Superman film, especially if the city-in-a-bottle aspect were filtered and tweaked through the lens of current sci-fi tropes, not to mention theoretical physics subjects, like parallel dimensions, tesseracts, etc. And what an issue overall, complete with ads for two disgraced sports legends. Oh, those were the days. Second, I know I've missed your deadline, but I wanted to let you know my favorite kryptonite story, and that is... The story that kicked off the Bronze Age, Kryptonite Nevermore, and the saga of the Sand Superman. I never read it until I was an adult, but experienced it for the first time with my son when he was six or so. We were both really engrossed in it, and we and were kept wondering issue by issue just who this weird imposter was. Again, that story could be adapted into a successful Superman film today. Instead of having Superman vs. Batman, why not Superman vs. Superman? Here's a random question for you. Did Superman ever have any Bronze Age meetups with Mambat? I don't think that poor Dr. Langstrom gets much press today, but he always has been my favorite Batman villain, mostly thanks to the power records Robin meets Man Bat. Man, I love that thing. And I wondered if he ever went head-to-head, or maybe worked hand-in-hand with, The Man of Tomorrow. If there are any such stories, would you cover them on your podcast? Also, many thanks to J. David for a fun and fast-paced fast-paced Legion story recap. I'm excited because I have a lot of these Superboy stories, so now I can play along at home. Thanks for a fun show. Keep them coming. Mike Poteet at BiblioMike on Twitter. 
Well, thank you, Mike. Um, let's see. Questions you asked. First of all, I think that Kryptonite Nevermore would be a great uh, story to have to be animated. Uh, you've gone ahead and answered the next or last week's uh, or last episode's question. So that's cool. So you got both of those taken care of. And yeah, Kryptonite Nevermore was a pretty good Kryptonite story too. So I will go. I will hardly agree with you for that. Ran your random question: Have Superman ever met Manbat in the Bronze Age? Well, they may have in DC Comics Presents, but I don't know. I know that they did not in the main Superman or Action Comics titles during the Bronze Age. Now, I do know that Manbat did show up in at least one issue of the Super Friends, so it's possible they met there. How much canon that? series is i do not know so uh, but i believe that that would have been the only spot that they might have even possibly met since there was talk of a toy for the superpowers line they could have even met in the superpowers series but i haven't found anything to support that uh, so other than that super friends issue i don't know that was by the way super friends number 28 if you want to check that out our next one is a comment left on episode 84 by our friend Russell Bragg. Russell writes, Hello, I was very flattered and touched when you called me your co-host. If I was a better talker and had Skype, I might consider doing an episode with you as a guest. Maybe. Episode 84 was a very interesting episode for a comic book issue I do not own. It was nice to find out how Brainiac managed to return from the shrinkdown Superman gave him in Superman 338, as talked about in episode 83. I have always enjoyed Brainiac as a supervillain. It was always cool when he showed up on Super Friends. It was also cool that at one time, I think during the challenge of the Super Friends run, he was voiced by distant, distant cousin Ted Cassidy. I'm also distantly related to Jimmy Stewart, but I never got to meet either one of them. What? Wait, whoa, whoa. Do, you, can't, you can't just put that in there and then just leave it alone. You, you're related to both of them? Mind blown. Uh, anyway, Russell continues. I can't remember how Superman's reprogramming of Brainiac came back to bite him, but you got my cur curiosity enough to see if I have the issues to find out. Was this when they changed his look and went, went more robotic? If so, I think I have those issues. Actually, this was before that. These are Action Comics for 528, 529, and 530. During the Marv Wolfman era, but before the whole robot thing. Anyway, on to the ads. I actually sent away for the O.J. Simpson dingo picture. I don't have it anymore. I thought your wife did an outstanding job voicing Wonder Woman. She really sounded the part. You did good too. Got to praise you since I forgot last time. <laughs> Thanks, man. The American Broadcasting Company, ABC, has changed several logo designs since its inception in 1943. The earliest ABC logo was introduced in, the, in late 1943 and consisted of an icon of a microphone with the letters TV on its left and right sides respectively. The letters ABC were vertically aligned within the image of the microphone. In 1961, the circle logo was designed by the legendary graphic designer Paul Rand. The logo consisted of a simple black circle with the lowercase letters ABC. This version was the cornerstone of the network's clear and cohesive advertising and communications. The use of negative space and simplicity, combined in a circle, provided a clear and consistent message to the audience. In 2007, the network introduced a 3D version of the logo while revamping it with a more modernistic, glossier, and advanced look. It has barely changed in over 50 years. See, this is why I love it when Russell writes in. He, he does history lessons. Thank you, Russell. So I was sort of right. J. David Weider has me intrigued with plan changes to his segment. I love the Superman The Secret Year storyline and can't wait to hear David's take on it. Since David is such a Superman fan, could you ask him for me if he thinks that the Filmation cartoons will ever make it to DVD? Well, I did go ahead and ask him that, and Dave has an answer for you, Russell. Dave? Russell, this is a question I have been asking for a long time, as these old Superboy cartoons were a big big part of my love for the character but you know now that the superboy litigation is somewhat over yeah that definitely clears the way of some hurdles but there are others like rights issues and one of the big things for me from my perspective is fan demand for the cartoons which is there but it may not be as vocal as it could be we've seen some amazing things happen when fans organize and put a focus on getting a dvd released like look at the live action superboy but then again 
Look at the DVD collection of the Filmation Superman cartoon, The Partner Show. It remains at one volume, which holds about half of the actual episode run, mainly because Warner Brothers perceives that we, the fans, don't necessarily want more. But I think we've got increased chances with the digital on-demand option that they've been using, because we have seen some amazing things, so perhaps the next couple of years we could see the release, but Warner Brothers needs to know that we want it, or it may not appear on their radar. One nice consolation prize is, for now, you can find a lot of the Superboy animated segments on YouTube, which doesn't replace being able to recline and enjoy a program in the comfort of your living room or home theater, but it will do in a pinch. Definitely excellent question, Russell. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Next question of the week. How about favorite Superman story with Supergirl? Guess that's all for now. Hope all is well, and I eagerly await your Diamonds and Sapphires episode. Or episode 85. (laughs) Thank you, Russell. And, uh... That's a good question. I'm not going to use it this time since, well, I'm going to go ahead and reveal this now. I am recording the the next three episodes all together because I'm getting ready to go on vacation. And I'll be gone for a couple weeks. So um, I'm going to wait until episode 86 to do the question of the week. How's that sound? So no question, but I will use that for the next question. And that's going to do it for our feedback segment. So after a couple of promos, we'll be right back with the Phantom Zone. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weider, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, Podcast Obsessed, got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, Monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Superman Presents the Phantom Zone number 1 had a cover date of January 1982 and an on-sale date of October 22, 1981, with a cover price of 60 cents in the United States and 20p in the UK. The title of the issue is The Haunting of Charlie Questkill, written by Steve Gerber, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Tony DeZanuga, lettered by Milt Snappen, colored by Carl Gafford, and edited by Dick Giordano. And Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Charlie Questkill is known as the Daily Planet Production Department's Ace of Paste. Unfortunately, he's been having a rough time lately, a fact that is made worse when Perry White catches him asleep on the printing plate for the Night Owl edition of the Daily Planet. Questkill awakens, scared, and is so out of it that he falls out of his chair, injuring his head. Showing some sympathy for his valued employee, 
Perry sends him home early to get some much-needed sleep. But when he gets home, sleep is the last thing on Charlie's mind, as he sees his reflection in the mirror, complete with the bandage on his head, and finds it curious, because criminals are not permitted to wear headbands. With this thought, Charlie's reflection is replaced by the image of a planet orbiting a red sun, a planet being orbited by rocket ships containing people in suspended animation. A world where the soils spawned jungles the colors of blood, where volcanoes spewed molten gold, where a world of jewel mountains and cascading fire and, and canyon-spanning rainbows that shone even in darkest night. It is a world that long ago perished. It is also the world of Charlie Questkill's birth. But Charlie doesn't know that. Charlie doesn't know anything of his past prior to the day he was hired by the Daily Planet. For that matter, Charlie does not know now whether he's awake or dreaming, or whether it makes any difference. He can be certain, though, of one thing. He's stumbled into the horror one more time, and nothing he can do or say can stop it. Every night for weeks, he's, it's been the same. The plunge through space into the giant planet's clouds, where his body seems to evaporate, not destroyed, merely discarded. A being of pure consciousness, Charlie descends to the planet's human level and observes. He sees a young scientist named Jorel presenting the Science Council with an alternative to the Kryptonian practice of sentencing criminals to those same rockets that we saw earlier. He's discovered an alternate dimension that he calls the Phantom Zone. Also, he has created a device he calls the Phantom Zone Projector that can send people over to this other dimension, which he demonstrates by sending his wife, Lara, to the Phantom Zone. In the zone, she's able to hear and see everything that is going on in the Council Chamber. She's a wraith, feeling no hunger, requiring no sleep, and not aging. All she can do is think, meaning that the criminals will be forced to contemplate the folly of their crimes while they're in the zone. After Jorel brings Lara back from the Phantom Zone and completes his presentation, a man by the name of Grammo prepares to demonstrate the artificial men he has created to replace the current robot labor force. Unfortunately, the Phantom Zone projector has apparently disabilized the, or destabilized the android's molecular composition. Humiliated, Grandma leaves, but not before vowing that all of Krypton will pay. Charlie even sees Grandma in his lab nearby later on, donning a strange helmet that allows him to take control of the robot police force and cause them to attack everybody. By morning, the science police have apprehended Grandma, and he becomes the last criminal sentenced to exile in space, as the Science Council approves Jor-El's Phantom Zone proposal. Charlie's dream continues as he sees renegade scientist Jack Sir test his new guidance system by firing nuclear missiles to intercept a meteor in space. Unfortunately, his guidance system fails. The missiles miss the meteor and instead strike Wegthor, one of Krypton's moons, completely annihilating it. For his crime, Jack Sir is sentenced to eternity in the Phantom Zone. Jumping ahead in time, Charlie sees Professor Vaycox attempt to alter the evolution of marine species using a formula of his own creation. Since the waters will remain polluted for 50 sun cycles, that is also the amount of time Vaycox is sentenced to the Phantom Zone. Next, Charlie sees Dr. Zadu, sentenced to 30 sun cycles in the zone for, be for using suspended animation in his medical research. Then he sees Feyora Hu'ol, master of the art of Horu Kanu, a Kryptonian martial art arrested for the torture and murder of 23 men. She's sentenced to 300 sun cycles in the zone. Soon, Charlie watches as Fort Roz, Krypton's main defense center, is under attack by General Zod and his army, each soldier an imperfect duplicate of himself. But Zod's forces are overwhelmed, and Zod is sentenced to 40 sun cycles in the zone. As Charlie wonders how such an advanced society can produce such criminals, his attention is now focused on Urkhol, Krypton's oldest city, where he, see, where he sees Azrael, a pyrotic who can, call, who can start fires just by thinking about it, and Nadira, who uses psychokinesis to invade the nervous system of another being. He sees them arrested for murder and theft, and sentenced to 15 sun cycles in the zone. Soon, Charlie is back in Kryptonopolis, where he sees Jor-El's cousin, Cruel, create and fire off a cache of forbidden weaponry. He also sees Jor-El not only fire the stun blast that ends Cruel's rampage, but also sees him carry out Cruel's sentence of 35 sun cycles in the zone. Next, he sees the arrest of a man who's been killing Rondors and secretly using their radiant horns to cure people in the Hall of Healing. The man's name is Quexel, and he looks just like Charlie Cuskel. And he too is also sentenced to the Phantom Zone. 
Then he watches as the Phantom Zone criminals combine their wills to attack a fever-stricken Jorel, compelling him to release them from the zone. Fortunately, his wife Lara stops him before he can carry out the deed, and soon Jorel launches the projector, along with Cruel's weapons, into deep space. Nine days later, he sees Krypton explode. Now, this is the point at which the dream normally ends, leaving Charlie to face his fear and bafflement alone. But this time, he awakens inside a Star Labs facility, stealing an electronic device of some kind and wondering how he got there, and how he was able to get through the security forces as he slowly walks out amidst the unconscious bodies. Meanwhile, inside the zone, General Zod reveals that everything is going to plan. Charlie is Quexel, and his time in the zone has made him susceptible to telepathic incursion, which has allowed them to bring him to the brink of madness and control him while he sleeps, and, of course, make him steal electronic components. Speaking of electronic components... We then fast-forward several nights to the WGBS building, where Perry tries to light a fire under Jimmy Olsen to get the story on a rash of electronic burglaries. After Jimmy complains to Clark, he goes in to see Perry and learns that Charlie has not been back to work since Perry sent him home the other day. Being especially worried about Charlie due to his Kryptonian origins, Clark heads out to check on him, after running to his office to change to Superman. Since he had actually helped Charlie find his apartment, uh, Superman is quickly able to reach it. After a quick x-ray scan reveals that the apartment is empty, Superman head ba heads back to WGBS. But inside, the Phantom Zone phantoms relish in the fact that Superman was in too much of a hurry to see that they had Charlie hiding out of sight. Later that night, after Clark and Lana complete the 11 o'clock newscast, Clark changes to Superman once again to go check Charlie's apartment one more time. But this time, Charlie is there, and he has used all of the electronic components he stole to build a crude phantom zone projector. Unfortunately, he activates it before Superman can stop him, and the resulting explosion, due to the fact that it's an inferior product, not only frees the phantom zone criminals, but also shunts Charlie and Superman into the phantom zone. And that's the end of the first issue, and after a couple of promos, we'll move on to the notes. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. His name is Oliver Queen. For five years he was stranded on an island with only one goal. Podcast. I mean, survive. Now he will fulfill his father's dying wish and bring down those who are poisoning his city. My name is Reese Park. And I am Lee Busby. I am Dean Hill. And my name is Sundra J.F. And we are The Undertaking. Like most criminal organizations in comics nowadays, we have turned good and we plan to tackle one episode of the new season of Arrow each week. Join The Undertaking at theundertakingpodcast.podomatic.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Arrow The Undertaking. And also on iTunes. You know... A dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. <laughs> One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Okay, first off, it should be noted that Quexel first appeared way back in 1962 in Superman 157, where Superman released him from the Phantom Zone because his sentence was up. Not a grateful sort, he attempted to lure Superman into a gold kryptonite trap, which would have removed his powers forever. 
That is, until Superman discovered that Quexel had actually acted under the mental control of another Kryptonian, Rogar, the true Rondor killer. Learning this, Quexel threw himself onto the trap to save the hero, and the gold kryptonite not only stole his powers, but apparently also his memory. Afterwards, Superman set him up with an Earth identity, home, and job, and was, he was basically relegated to the background until this miniseries. Superman first learned about the Phantom Zone as Superboy in Adventure Comics 283, which came out in April of 1961. Not long after, Monel made his debut in Superman 89, or I'm sorry, in Superboy 89, which came out in June 61. He of course is a Daxamite with the same powers under the red under a yellow sun as a Kryptonian, but has a weakness to lead. Unlike a Kryptonian's weakness to Kryptonite, merely moving the lead away from a Daxamite does not save them automatically, and in this situation, coupled with the fact that current day Earth is full of lead, Superboy was forced to send Monel into the Phantom Zone until a cure could be found, which is why Monel does not try to escape and help Superman at all. Unfortunately, it would take about a thousand years for that cure to be found, but Monel does eventually get released in the 30th century and does become a member of the Legion of Superheroes. So I just wanted to point that out uh, one, to introduce Quexel, and one, to explain why. Monel, what didn't escape and help. Uh, as for notes for this issue, I don't have a lot of notes. Mostly this was a history lesson and a lot of setup for the rest of the series. So I just don't have that many notes this time. But on page two, as a bit of a visual cue, and this actually continues throughout the rest of the series, Charlie's clothing is yellow and green, the same colors as Quexel's Kryptonian garb. Page 10, we see Dr. Zadu, who we meet here, uh, and he's not in the Phantom Zone when, the other, these, when Zod and the others escape because he's already been out. See, at some point, he and his wife Zeta escaped, first showing up in Superboy 100, masquerading as Jarrell and Lara, uh, to try to trick Superboy. After Superboy ended up outwitting them, they don't appear again until the Bronze Age in a two-part story running in Action Comics 434 and 435, in which they try to uh, make Superman destroy the world. They get close to succeeding. Uh, but at the end, Superman is able to outwit them and puts them in separate prisons in separate galaxies. And I do not believe we ever see them again. But that would be why they don't escape, because they're not in the zone at this point. Uh, page 16. Quexel gets a bit of a redesign here. Uh, the symbol on his chest has changed. Uh, the goatee he sported in the 60s is now a, basically a beard. And they gave him more hair, although it's shaggier, instead of like, like a nice comb back. Then again, in 1962, they didn't have as much hair in 62 as they did later on. Even Superman, if you notice, had really short hair and a huge forehead. And by the time we got into the 70s, longer hair, less forehead. It, so I don't know how much of that is just the style and how much is the artist. Overall, this is a very different Superman story than you would read in the main Superman books. The tone is a bit darker. Perry seems a bit overstressed, and the art is much scratchier. As someone who didn't get into comics until well after this version of Superman had been retired, it is always cool for me to see a more modern take on the pre-crisis Superman. As for the art, I like Gene Cullen's work on Batman and Daredevil, and it normally would not work for me on Superman, but it does fit in for this darker toned story. Unfortunately, I'm not sure if it's the inking or the then current printing process or both but it looks really muddy in several places however regardless of how much i enjoy kurt swan's art as well as the more modern touch of a jose luis garcia lopez perhaps be his name colon's art gives everything a touch of more realism while keeping the energy levels high this realism makes the guy in tights flying over the city look even more amazing and like i said Lopez, praise be his name, does make things more modern. It's also a kind of romanticized, clean modern most of the time, especially in the Superman books. So it, it just isn't quite the same. There really aren't any handsome, supremely handsome or supremely beautiful people in this issue. Uh, now, I can't say too much about the story since it's mostly just a history lesson and setup for the rest of the for the rest of the miniseries, and I'm slowly, I'm, I'm actually reading this for the first time, and I was doing the notes without reading ahead, so I, uh, I, I don't know how much of setup this was setting up at the time, but I can tell you it was pretty enjoyable. I, 
kind of like the a history lesson when it sets up a miniseries. It helps that I'm reading that I can read all the four issues at once now, rather than having to wait a month in between issues. But yeah, it, it's nice. Uh, but I am looking forward to getting into the next one. But that's my notes. So I'm going to do a couple more promos, and then we'll be back to look at the ads. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Okay, our ads start with the inside front cover with a full color ad. Uh, trucking adventure with Tyco's US1 electric trucking. And these are basically uh, toy trucks and they've put them on a. a uh, Looks like one of those racetracks. It's actually a pretty cool looking set. It's hard to tell how it really looks though, because the whole thing is drawn crudely. There's no actual pictures of the set. Next one up, Bubble Yum ad. The magic in gum is Bubble Yum. And we've got the Bubble Yum wizard showing you how you can do a magic trick of making it appear as though you've made a piece of bubble wrap of Bubble Yum bubble gum disappear. And it comes in four flavors, Wild Cherry, Tropical Punch, Spearmint, and Grape. I'm thinking they have more now. Just a guess. Next up, America's favorite candy maker says, Amaze your friends with my Willy Wonka Magic Card Tricks Kit. Amaze your friends with my Willy Wonka Magic Card Trick Kit. Yes, it's Willy Wonka, looking quite different than he does in the movie. Uh, uh, teaching how you can do card tricks. And it's also an ad for Tartan Tinies, Scrunch, Oompas, Bottle Caps, and Wacky wacky Wafers, as well as the Everlasting, everlasting Gobstopper, Dinosaur Eggs, Daredevils, Volcano Rocks, Sneaks, Mix-Ups, and Just Juice. That's where you can find the forms to get the kit. Next ad is a monogram model ad for different kinds of jets from the military. There's the F-14A Navy Tomcat, the Whistle Harrier, the F-4J Navy Phantom II, the F-111 Swing Wing, and the B-25J Mitchell, which looks to be the oldest of the group. But they're in 148th scale, so that's pretty cool. I'm not a model person, and I'm not that big into planes, so yeah. The next ad is for the NBC Superstar Saturday. Pow. Which is weird, because I believe I said that this issue came out in November. Oh, October. Eh, still. But, you know, this is for cartoons starting September 12th. Riddle for you. What has Smurfs, Space Stars, Spider-Man, and a Superpower Hour? The NBC Superstar Saturday. That's what. Here, there's exciting new fun in 81. The day starts off with the Flintstone comedy show before going into Smurfs. Then the, the Kid Superpower Hour with Shazam, 
where teenagers can fly at Hero High. Uh, let's see. And then, of course, the Space Stars, including Space Ghost. So it's a bunch of Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Uh, and Spider-Man and his amazing friends, followed by the Daffy and Speedy Show and Bullwinkle. I actually cover cartoons from the 80s over on an episode of Charlie's Geek Cast, in which I actually go through. There's one episode covering the Saturday morning cartoons, and there's one episode covering all of the syndicated cartoons. I list just about all of them and play the themes to several of them. So if, you want, if you're interested at all for that bit of nostalgia, go check that out over at charliesgeekcast.com. Uh, the inside back cover has an ad for more models while they ha already have them like hot wheel size now you can get these new models for cars much bigger five and a half to six inches long and boy do they look like ugly modern 1981 vehicles Whew. red orange and blue and the back cover is for the lego expert builders series challenge 8860 which seems to be very similar to the ad that we had last episode with the challenge ad, but this time it's the same vehicle, or it's a similar vehicle at a different angle. So, Legos. All right, now let's look at some of the issues that came out this month. Other issues with a January 1982 cover date. Going in alphabetical order, we have Action Comics, number 527, Superman's first encounter with Lord Satanus. That's right, in case you didn't know, he was Bronze Age. Adventure Comics number 489 features two stories starring the Dial H for Hero. All-Star Squadron number 85 introduces fi the female Firebrand to the team, as well as showcasing on the cover anyway, Robot Man, Hawk Man, Dr. Midnight, and Johnny Quick fighting some soldiers at the Statue of Liberty. This is still part of the introductory storyline uh, from All-Star Squadron. Good stuff, by the way. Best of DC Digest number 20 features uh, some reprints of World Finest stories featuring Batman and Superman. Over in Batman number 343, Jerry Conway, Gene Colan, and Klaus Jansen have a story entitled A Dagger So Deadly. Plus, Robin the Teen Wonder gets his own backup story, Odyssey's End. Over in Brave and the Bold, number 182, our Batman ends up on Earth 2, meeting up with Robin and Batwoman up against Hugo Strange. Plus, an appearance by Starman. And Nemesis has a backup feature in featuring Gray Fox. DC Comics Presents number 41 has the terrible Tinseltown Treasure Trap Treachery featuring a team-up of Superman and the Joker. Plus, Perry White shows up, too. That is a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise Be His Name story that he does art on. Good stuff. Also, extra in this issue is a 16-page preview of the new Wonder Woman by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, our artist for this issue. Uh, this is also the introduction of the W emblem on her that she wears on her chest as opposed to the eagle that she had been wearing just about since her creation. Detective Comics number 510 features, uh, looks like Batman's being electrocuted by the Mad Hatter. And it's got a, bat a Batgirl backup story, Bride of Destruction. Over in Flash number 305, it looks like both Barry Allen and Jay Garrick's wives die, which generally is not a good thing. But it's also got Carmine Infantino art on the cover, and it looks not very good. Green Lantern number 148. Green Lantern takes on Goldface, and it looks like we get the introduction of a backup feature featuring the Green Lantern core. Justice League of America 198 shows the Justice League facing off against some of the Old West heroes. Batlash, Cinnamon, or Cinnamon, Jonah Hex, and Scalp Hunter by George, or I'm sorry, by Ross Andrew and Romeo Tangal on the cover. And it looks pretty sweet. The heroes, by the way, in this, uh, according to the cover anyway, are The Flash, Zatanna, Green Lantern, and Elongated Man. Legion of Superheroes number 283 does a spotlight on the startling secret of wildfire, which means that this might be one of J. David Weider's favorite issues because he's a big wildfire fan and to throw things off the cover is drawn and inked by Jim Aparo 
who you always associate with, you know, the Legion. Moving right along. New Adventures of Superboy number 25. Superboy fights against a robot. The man who kidnapped nature. New Teen Titans number 15. The Brotherhood of Evil Lives Again. Featuring beautiful cover art by George Perez and Romeo Tangal. Wow. Oh, and also the Doom Patrol shows up. Woo! Superman takes on the Revengers in Superman number 367, along with a story of the fabulous world of Krypton and not a drop to drink. Superman Family has five all-new stories. The cover story is Supergirl in the Strange Revenge of Lena Luthor. While the rest of the Superman family also deals with certain things, Super, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Superman deal with the Horde of the Insect Queen. Clark Kent gl gives blood, but Superman saves lives. Lois Lane fears has four walls and no name. And Jimmy Olsen, caution, physical fitness can be hazardous to your health. I completely agree with that. Uh, Wonder Woman number 287 features a team-up between Wonder Woman and the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans, in The Eye of the Beholder. Plus, there's a Huntress backup story, so that's all cool. And World's Finest number 275, Superman and Batman dealing with summer days, winter nights. While Metropolis is ablaze, Gotham City is frozen. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. For a pretty cool cover, though, including a lot of 70s fashions as the people are burning in Metropolis. There's also stories featuring Green Arrow and Black Canary, Zatanna, Hawkman, and Captain Marvel. And thus ends the Superman portion of the episode. Next up, J. David Weeder covers Superboy and the Legion one last time. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, and welcome to a very special installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age, as I, J. David Weeder, take a look at one final Legion story. For the final tale, I kind of thought about doing something special, but yet, when I read the next story in order, I knew it was kind of a fitting end for this era of my segment. It says a lot about the Legion. So this time around, we are looking at Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, issue 210, the August 1975 issue. The comic features a cover by Mike Grell showing Lightning Lad trying to blast Superboy with a bolt of electricity and missing. And Superboy playfully mocks Lightning Lad, saying that all the Legionnaire hit was a hole in the ground. But there is a figure rising from that hole, and as the text says, that's what you think, Superboy. Inside is a story entitled Soldiers Private War, which was written by Jim Shooter with art by the aforementioned Mike Grell, and the story begins with Lightning Lad, Phantom Girl, and Superboy doing some practice. Lightning Lad tries to hit Superboy with one of his lightning bolts, and Superboy is being a sport and moving slowly for Lightning Lad, but as the scheduled rain begins, yes, they schedule their weather in the future, how awesome would that be? Something is unearthed in the debris. Something not seen by our friends in the Legion. A soldier that is less than man and barely more than alive. Who is this strange man thing? Let us travel back 200 years. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. All the way back to World War VI, which was a super war with super weapons, and it almost wiped out the human race. A squadron of soldiers enter near Metropolis with orders to take the city as a storm begins to pour rain on them. This one was not scheduled, folks. But before they can make their advance and take the city, a gamma grenade, yes, a gamma grenade, no, we're not creating any hulks here today, but interesting nonetheless, but the grenade is thrown into the formation from out of nowhere, and one brave soldier throws himself onto it as it explodes, and he is simultaneously struck by lightning. What a terrible way to go, dude. You're blown up just as lightning strikes you, man. The soldier's name is Assad. And sadly, he is buried on the spot of his final brave sacrifice because his body is so hot, his soldier friends cannot touch it. So he has to be buried on the spot, and his fellow soldiers speak highly of him. What a fine soldier he was. And yet, 200 years later, he has been revived by the storm and Lightning Lad's electric bolts. Yeah, it's a little bit of a Frankenstein vibe if you're not catching it. Lightning, it's alive, it's alive! And kind of like Frankenstein in the original book, or Frankenstein, if you will, he cannot remember his name. He's got a few vague memories. The only thing he remembers are the last words he was hearing and the word soldier. 
So he takes on that name, misspelled with a J, Soldier, spelled phonetically, and continues toward his final mission in his memory banks, taking Metropolis. And let's take a moment here, let's stop for a moment and look at what we've read so far, a little extra notes, because the issue opens pretty much with the same scenario that we saw on the cover. And every now and then when I have something like this, I flip back and forth, just wondering if the cover was supposed to be a part of the story. It's really kind of a cool effect. Of course, Grill's artwork is top shelf, it's always top shelf, and it shines really, really brightly, which is an odd choice of words, in a murky panel on page two when Soldier is rising from the muck of the ground in the rain. It manages... To be evocative of the mood without, you know, going all Walking Dead and zombified. We're not looking at Dawn of the Dead. And I'm pretty sure that kind of tone would have been a very big temptation for this kind of scene. Especially, you know, even looking at the Frankenstein vibe. And I wish we were given a little bit more detail on World War VI, as I'm not entirely sure who was fighting who and whether the taking of Metropolis was a good thing. I mean, was it occupied by the evil Dominion? Or was Assad on the bad guy's side? We don't know. We're kind of given a hint, and I have kind of an idea that because of the uniform, maybe Assad was the good guy, but maybe, really, it's not that important to the overall story. But I'm a bit anal retentive, which, as Michael Bailey will tell you, is hyphenated. But getting back to the meat of the story, where, you know, the rubber's hitting the road, Soldier arrives in Metropolis, which comes to the attention of the Legion, and they go to greet him, only to find him blasting the city with a gun that isn't in his hand. And Superboy even takes a hit from Soldier's invisible rifle and is knocked back by antimatter energy. But the biggest surprise and a gasp-worthy moment is when Phantom Girl tries to leap on Soldier in her intangible form and takes an invisible knife to her intangible gut. But how can this be? Brainiac 5 takes Phantom Girl back to the infirmary and struggles as he sees no wound despite the fact that she is writhing in pain and Chameleon Boy shows up. And Brainy has an idea. Bing! And asks Chameleon Boy to use his powers to go intangible and pull the invisible knife out, which is successful. With the knife removed, Phantom Girl is set to recover, and Brainiac 5 explains that Soldier's weapons work on the Phantom Plane. So they realize Soldier is not really of this age or of this of this reality in some sense. So they dive to the computer banks to do some research and put some puzzle pieces together. And I know, let me stop, an invisible gun. That's a bit 90s. And Soldier is creating quite a bit of damage with the gun. But remember, he came from an age of super weapons. I had to remind myself of that to keep myself on board with the story. And one gun could probably do like a noisy cricket from Men in Black and blast holes in the walls. It is odd that Superboy can identify an antimatter fusion blast. I can expect that kind of expository dialogue from Brainiac 5. But hey, what do I know? Maybe Superboy's an expert on exactly what he's getting blasted with. Maybe that was part of the Legion training. But as I mentioned, talk about a gas moment when Soldier stabs the intangible Phantom Girl. I was actually shocked for a moment. It took me back. And the resolution of all this confusion is even more amazing. Because back on the streets of Metropolis, Soldier's march is suddenly halted as he looks around and sees that the city is destroyed around him and his commanding officer appears and tells Soldier that his mission is complete and to stand down. And when Soldier does stand down, the dedication to his mission and his army is completed and the Soldier falls dead, finally resting in the peace that he has earned. Now to pull the curtain back, Princess Projectra faked the illusion of a destroyed metropolis as Chameleon Boy pretended to be his commanding officer and created a Mission Impossible fake-out scenario just to give Soldier some closure as he wasn't a villain. He was just confused. In this instance, I really like the Chameleon Boy fake-out. I dig it here. It makes perfect sense. And then you get this really nice ending with the Legionnaire saying that Assad will receive a monument for his act of valor in throwing himself on the grenade to save his friends. And we get a quote, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I was initially put off by the idea, that Assad was getting a monument, but once again, it stems from not knowing much about the Sixth World War, but when I look at Assad's uniform, it closely resembles the uniform of the science police, which kind of gives me a visual clue that I could use to assume he was on the good side, but still, it's kind of nice to have those answers provided so we can be sympathetic for the character. The reason I like this story, and the reason I'm, I'm glad that this is kind of our final story, is the compassion that the Legionnaires show to Assad by creating a ploy to help him finish his mission Rather than try to beat him into submission or try to treat him as if he is a villain, they used brains. They used research to pinpoint a resolution that was, in an odd way, a win-win scenario. It shows an advancement in superheroing, and it shows what Superman's example can do when it is refined and it is taken across time. This team, the Legion, is truly a group of people who strive to do good 
and they do it in a way that is advanced, and it is why the Legion is such a great read. And I'm going to miss talking about the Legion, but as you saw from this in the last few issues, they're kind of taking over the book from Superboy, and Superboy's in the back seat. So it is time to move on from this. Next time, we return to Solo Superboy Tales to begin a five-part series showing how Superboy becomes Superman, which closes out the Superboy in the Bronze Age segment to make way for something new that I will be presenting in 2014. And it's a very special batch of episodes. But until then, and for the last time, long live the Legion. Could have used more wildfire. All right, thanks, Dave. And that will do it for this episode. Next week, make sure that you head over to Charlie's GeekCast for part two of The Phantom Zone. You can find that at charliesgeekcast.com or on iTunes. I also plan on posting the episodes over at the Superman Podcast Network, and I'm going to see if I can get them posted over at the Superman homepage. You can check them out there as well. And then make sure you come back here in just two weeks for part three of The Phantom Zone. I'll see you then. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. You can also find the show on Stitcher Smart Radio, as well as Facebook, where you can get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network at www.comicspodcasts.com. Please make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. <laughs>